Welcome to the Code Newbie Podcast, where we talk to people on their coding journey in hopes of helping you on yours. I'm your host, Saran, and today we're talking about what we can all learn from the experience of being a neurodivergent developer with Alex Karp, author of the new book, Running Start, How to Get a Job in Tech, Keep That Job, and Thrive. If we really want to tackle this and do the right thing for as many people as possible, we kind of have to take everything apart, rethink it, and put it back together. Alex talks about some of the biggest misconceptions about autism, how putting effort into accessibility and inclusion helps everyone, and what has personally helped him thrive in his career. After this. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Alex, you have had a pretty awesome career in tech, engineering manager at Twitter, software development engineer at Microsoft, and ended up as a senior app engineering manager at Wayfair. So, obviously, you've got quite the resume. Tell us about how you first got into coding. I got really, really lucky in a few different ways when it came to getting into tech. I knew from a very early age that I liked computers and that I wanted to do something with them. For Mm. me, being able to write software was a way of solving problems, Mm -hmm. usually my own problems, because I'm just a little bit selfish like that. (laughs) It was an interesting thing to play around with. And it was in the time where there wasn't a ton in terms of resources out there for learning how to do web development, at least not like not like there are now. Mm-hmm. Then again, JavaScript was a lot simpler back then. Mm-hmm. So really what I did was I had all of these projects that I would come up with. And in trying to accomplish those things, I would piece together what I needed to know from various sources on the internet. Then when the iPhone came out, I looked at that and I was like, oh, wow, okay, so I can take all of this stuff with me now. And so of mm. course I got into that and I've been doing iOS development off and on ever since the SDK came out, which I guess Mm. is 14 years ago now, 15 Mm -hmm, years ago. mm -hmm. But because I knew from such an early age that I wanted to do development, like I was able to put myself through a computer science program. I, you know, did internships. I, you know, networked a bunch. And that's really how I got my start in tech. Tell me about what happened when you graduated. How did you get that first full-time developer job? So. That first full-time job was at Microsoft, and funny enough, I had applied the year before for an internship and was rejected, though that's a, oh, complete, interesting. Huh. That's a completely separate story with a <laughs> wonderful interviewer who didn't pay any attention to me. Oh, yeah, oh it, was, no. it was bad. But, you know, I worked with reps from Microsoft for a little bit because at school, I was heavily involved in the school's Association for Computing Machinery professional group chapter. Mm-hmm. The group was tasked with bringing companies to the campus, getting them to sponsor different events like hackathons or resume reviews and you know, all of these other touch points. And so, you know, I'd had a lot of experience, you know, working with them. And so I thought, I'm going to try this and see what happens So you said that coding has, you know, has been something that you were interested in since you were young. What was it about coding that really resonated with you? I've always liked math and science and that sort of thing. And I think this seemed like an extension of that. Mm 
Mm. I also liked, and I, you know, still very much like to this day with the breadth of computer science as a field. Like there are so many intersections with literally everything you can think of. And so I, you know, really liked the idea of being able to find something that I was interested in and like find the intersection between that and software engineering. Yeah, that makes sense. So your story so far sounds like what most of us probably think of when we think about a successful engineer, right? Someone who started <laughs> young, studied computer science, interned, worked at these top companies, and, you know, is, is doing really well now. But what is maybe a little bit different about your story is the fact that you have autism. And you are very outspoken about your autism. And I wanted to better understand that. How would you describe your experiences as a developer, starting from the learning part when you're you know, kind of leveling up and trying to learn how to code as someone with autism? What was that experience like? So first things first, just to be fair, like each autistic person is an individual right. and you know it's really hard to generalize across all of us mm-hmm, i can't mm-hmm. speak for myself in that looking back on it i think that it was helpful towards learning where mm. a phenomena that a lot of autistic people experience is a kind of like hyper focused tunnel vision sort of thing where you know if i'm working on a project I can just like work for hours and hours and not even realize the amount of time that I put into it. It could literally be nighttime and I'm like, oh, wow, like where'd the day go? And I think that was helpful in terms of particularly when I was learning on Mm. my own to be able to do that. You know, it's also been interesting as a person who is late diagnosed, Mm. you know, which is actually a lot more common than you think Mm. in the autistic community. So I didn't have a formal diagnosis until the end of last year. Interesting. Wow, that's recent. Yeah, very recent. I had strong suspicions for years. I had actually even tried to get a diagnosis back in 2019, but the, the evaluator that I went to her understanding of autism wasn't the autistic community's understanding of autism. And so it was very based on stereotypes. It was very based on the idea that they wanted to save me from having the burden of being labeled as Mm. autistic, that sort of thing. Okay, so given that your diagnosis was so recent, when you look back on your journey, you know, since being a young kid and first getting exposed to coding, did you feel anything that felt off or felt different as you were kind of going through this that you now attribute to being autistic? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because it can really be applied to kind of everything, Mm. you know, especially looking back at growing up. It's the sort of thing where, you know, I look back on anything and I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of why, why that happened. Or Mm -hmm, like, you know, mm -hmm. I, I did have a feeling of feeling, I don't think I even really knew how to describe it, but just like slightly off, slightly askew, if you will. Mm -hmm, And just mm -hmm. like in a way that I didn't have words for and quite honestly, didn't really want to ask anybody about because, Mm. you know, obviously everybody already knows these things. And so I don't want to be the loser who's trying to figure out basic social constructs. And that was difficult. Mm. But for coding specifically, Mm. I don't think I ever 
put together just the amount of time that I would spend working on projects and the intensity of the interest of working on those things are, you know, absolutely with autism, we, we referred to like special interest areas. Mm. So, you know, that was one of my special interest areas as well as, you know, being able to hyper-focus through projects and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. really learn. Is there something about coding that makes it particularly attractive or, or maybe a, you know, a good fit for someone who has autism? Absolutely. It's funny enough, the same thing that actually makes it really difficult Mm -hmm. for people, particularly like, you know, those who are going through their first class in college, it's that you have a very immediate response in terms of what it is that you're writing. You know, you Mm -hmm. hit compile or you hit run or you pull up the web page and you either see it working or you don't. Mm -hmm. There's errors in the compilation. and it's very clear cut, even if the errors aren't always, you know, the most helpful. And so I think having that kind of structure where everything feels clear, where I can easily understand what goes into causing certain conditions and what comes out of them, I think was particularly appealing. So when it comes to the act of, you know, coding, all that makes a lot of sense. When I think about the process of interviewing for a job, that's a lot more subjective, touchy-feely, reading emotions, body language. It's a lot more of just other stuff. And so I'm wondering, when you think about your experience interviewing at these jobs, and obviously it worked out because you got some really awesome positions, what was that experience like kind of comparing the process of doing the job of coding versus the process of getting the job as a coder when it comes to being autistic? Yeah. I mean, and we all know that in general, the job of getting the job is usually significantly more difficult mm-hmm. than the mm-hmm. actual job <laughs> itself, regardless of, of everything yep. else. Amazing how that happens. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely no, it's amazing. almost like it was designed that way. Mm-hmm. But there are things that I think can make it more difficult mm-hmm. in terms of things like regulating emotions or sensory input can be difficult. And actually one of the things that I think has been nice about, you know, being able to do all of this virtually is that like, I feel like I'm able to have something in front of me that I'm fidgeting mm. with oh, discreetly yeah, that, yeah. you know, helps me regulate my emotions and my energy, mm-hmm. but isn't the focus point of everything. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that can yeah, be difficult. I actually just read an interviewing guide from one company which is, I mean, on the one hand, it's completely great that they send out this large guide that kind of walks you through how the company interviews. Mm. But one of the things that they specifically suggest is to make eye contact, something that's particularly difficult for me and for a lot of autistic people mm-hmm, is making mm-hmm. eye contact and knowing how much eye contact to make and when to look away, where to look, that sort of thing. But what I tell my team is if I'm looking away or something like that, Mm -hmm. it's not that I'm not listening to them. It's not that I'm not processing what they're saying. Really what's happening is there's a lot of 
sensory input going on, Mm -hmm. you know, it could be the lights or or whatever. And then like looking at their face is just giving me something more to process. Mm. So I'm trying to reduce some of that sensory input such that I can really focus on what it is that they're saying. Yeah. And I think that's so important for not just coworkers to know, but also for potential employers to know as well. Because, you know, when I'm the one doing interviews, you know, I tend to kind of be drawn to the more typical nonverbal cues, kind of like what you were saying, Mm -hmm. you know, when people make eye contact. I just feel like they're listening to me, you know, when yep. they're nodding, I, I feel like they're engaged when they're mm-hmm, you know, like all those active listening things that we learn yep. about really do make me feel like important and like they care and they're really engaged. And when they don't do those things, it, it kind of creates all these questions and all this doubt. And as the person interviewing, I have to kind of train myself out of that. And I have to think like, focus on what they say, like focus on the content, focus on the work, focus on the portfolio. And I have to force myself to ignore the cues that I'm just so used to paying attention to and so used to valuing, you know, I have to like unlearn those things. And so I'm I'm wondering, you know, what, what do you want people on the team who are doing these interviews, who are engaging with people who have, you know, maybe not even narrow uh, divergent needs, but just different styles of communication, different cultures, different, you know, et cetera. You know, what do you think is is helpful for them to keep in mind to make sure that we're giving people a fair chance based on skill and ability and maybe not based on some of these other cues that maybe aren't actually that important? I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of so much of things like accessibility and inclusion, yes, are really helpful for people, you know, like me who are artistic or other people who are, you know, neurodivergent and so on. But these sorts of things also help everybody. Mm. If we create an environment where we're more understanding about the way that another person might communicate or, you know, the way that they might not make eye contact or, Mm -hmm. or that sort of thing, then that's helpful for everybody. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. not to digress too much but like particularly when it comes to disability there's two models that they talk often about one is the medical model of disability mm-hmm. you know that's basically saying like if i were in a wheelchair i'm disabled because i can't walk up some stairs versus in a social model of disability if i am in this wheelchair i am disabled because there is no option Mm. for me to get up the stairs. Like there's no ramp. It was not built with me in mind. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a a useful mindset shift, not just for disabled people in terms of, you know, in terms of understanding that they're not the problem that Mm -hmm. society in a way is kind of the problem. I think it's also useful for everybody to kind of rethink what we assume is quote like normal like what we assume is the right way because that definitely came with some assumptions that were made the first time it happened right right and now we've just built those assumptions into everything 100 percent. what are some of the biggest misconceptions and things that people get wrong about autism and the experience of being autistic 
I think empathy is a big one. Mm. I think that there are a lot of autistic people who display very significant amounts of empathy. Not every autistic person. There are definitely the ones that have a really hard time with that. But Mm. what happens with autistic people is often that like, because we have a harder time understanding people's body language or any other like social cues we spend a lot of time observing people and trying to figure out what all of these things mean unfortunately mm-hmm. the reason for that is because we want to appear quote normal mm-hmm. and you know if normal means knowing that having my arms crossed means that i'm kind of guarded or or unhappy then like that's something that I need to know. Mm. Otherwise, it's going to draw attention to me and it's going to be a problem. So, I mean, from a very young age, autistic people, whether they know they're autistic or not, are basically forced to try to understand people's body language and how they're feeling and why they're feeling that. The thing about that, though, is that I think it actually makes somebody who's gone through that much better at using that empathy with others than I think somebody who maybe had the advantage of kind of knowing more about body language Mm. where, you know, because we had to spend so much time trying to figure it out, we might actually handle it a little better than somebody who hasn't. When I think about accessibility and related to that, diversity and inclusion, to me, it feels like we've gotten better in the tech industry about talking about these issues, caring about these issues, and kind of incorporating them into the mainstream. And I'm wondering, from your perspective as someone, you know, actually with autism, is that actually true? Are we getting better or are we just kind of talking about it have you seen improvement <laughs> you know, throughout your career in this area so <laughs> uh-huh. i would love to be the optimist and say that we've solved accessibility and inclusion but we are definitely not there yet i do think that companies as a whole are talking more about being as inclusive and accessible and equitable as possible but I do think that there is a lot that still needs to be done. Like we're Mm. mostly just at the stage of talking about it. Right. So as an autistic person and as a disabled person, like there's this paradigm that shows up time and time again when it comes to like needing accommodations Mm. is that, you know, the first time you need an accommodation, people are super understanding. And then, you know, when they realize that maybe that accommodation needs to stay they're you know they're still kind of understanding and then like over time it almost becomes resentful and seen as a burden what kind of accommodation can you give me maybe an example of that for example something that a lot of autistic people struggle with is called executive dysfunction Mm -hmm. so basically it's this idea that amongst other things if i'm trying to initiate a task there's this hurdle if you will that I'm trying to get over between 
the point A, which is I have the idea that I want to do this thing, and point B, which is I am doing this thing. And so, like, mm. there's this hurdle that's imperceptible to people without executive dysfunction that, you know, because that hurdle is not there, they only see that we never got to point B, so the problem must be with point A. And so, you know, that means that we didn't try to do it or like didn't want to do it or were lazy or that sort of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes accommodations can look like, like if somebody's running late to a meeting, pinging them on Slack or something and saying, Hey, did you mean to be here? Because, you know, it's incredibly possible for somebody, especially somebody who's autistic and is hyper-focused on something to just completely lose track of time. Mm -hmm. Even these small things that over time kind of build up in people's minds and really make them resentful of that. But back to the original point about, about, companies, I think that they're kind of in a similar boat where they want to support people with accommodations, but I don't think that they really have a good understanding of what reasonable accommodations look like. I would say that they're probably much better when it comes to physical disabilities. Like if I break my leg, sure, Mm -hmm. they'll give me a special chair or something. But if I'm having trouble with executive functioning and I can't initiate a task or I can't remember a meeting that I'm supposed to be in or something like that, they're much more at a loss. And so it's kind of up to you as a disabled person to figure out what would be helpful, if anything. The part where it gets more complicated is when it comes to performance philosophy. Hmm. And you wouldn't think so, but performance philosophy and accommodations often go hand in hand, where if a company's performance philosophy is something like we hold everybody to the same standard, we provide accommodations for people if they need them, but we hold everybody to the same standard. And, you know, that on the surface seems like a pretty reasonable philosophy. And it's a philosophy that I know mm. is in place at a lot of companies. The problem with that is that it's basically the medical model of disability, right? It's saying we hold the bar here for everybody. So we built these stairs and we offer accommodations, you know, we'll build you a ramp or something. But if you're not able to get up the stairs at the end of the day, you're not performing. Mm, I see. And so the problem is that when it comes to less obvious physical accommodations, it's never quite that simple, right? Like, just because I have an accommodation to, I don't know, work with a coach on my executive functioning doesn't necessarily mean that everything is going to be A-OK and, you know, I'll be able to hit that same bar as everybody else. Mm. It's the sort of thing that makes it really difficult for companies to support disabled employees at any level, but especially, mm. you know, at the higher levels where, you know, if, if a company can't support an autistic manager, for instance, like how on earth will they support an autistic VP or mm, CEO? True. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's, it's this thing where we try so hard to treat everybody the exact same because we think that we're trying to remove bias by doing that. But the problem is that not everybody is the same. And so, you know, it's basically looking at equity instead of equality. 
Is there anything that you feel like we are doing well in the uh, accessibility department in, in the tech industry? Do you see any positive trends? Anything that makes you hopeful? There's the obvious one that there's just a lot of people who are autistic or have ADHD or, or anything like that who are in tech. So, I mean, that in and of itself is good. And mm-hmm. like I said, I do think that companies are talking about accommodations, but I unfortunately think it's in the same category of issues as a lot of like really big systemic problems mm-hmm. that we face, not only in companies, but kind of in society where if we really want to tackle this and do the right thing for as many people as possible, we kind of have to take everything apart, rethink it and put it back together mm. rather than try to put some band-aids on the pieces that are that are broken. Mm-hmm. That takes a lot of time, a lot of effort and isn't always a pleasant process. As a developer with autism, what do you think has helped you thrive? Are there any tools, processes, best practices that have really allowed you to, you know, be your best self, be your best developer in your job and in your career? I think part of it comes from setting expectations mm-hmm. and trying to set expectations as early as possible. So I have something called a manager review where I walk through basically how I work what I value, things to know about me. And I have specifically have a section around being autistic and how somebody might see that manifest mm. and what it means, because I think it's important for people to just know. And so, you know, I, I have this document that I share with my team and with kind of everybody that I'm in regular contact with that I think is helpful for both of us that they understand how I work and how best to work with me. And, you know, in general, like I'm trying to make sure that there are expectations set when people reach out to me for something like, you know, if they, if they send me a message and then I get completely sidetracked, you know, I want to make sure that they understand what the expectations are. So like, you know, is the expectation that I respond in an hour in Mm. four hours a day, two days. And if I haven't, then like, is it okay to ping me and, and ask for an update? So, you know, by setting that expectation that, you know, I'll get to everything within one business day. And if you haven't heard from me, please ping me. It really does help others to understand how better to work with me. What do you think that other neurodivergent folks who are trying to break into tech What can they learn from your experience and your success? One of the things that I tell people is just how important you are to your career. You are the the person who's driving your career. Mm. And if you wait for your manager or for somebody else to kind of notice the work that you're doing, it's going to take a lot longer for you to get to where you want to go. And if you're not advocating for yourself to get the projects that are interesting to any of the opportunities that might be interesting, really trying to figure out what it is that you need in order to get your next promotion, like whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, unless you're the person who's driving that, it's going to take a lot longer and it probably won't work out as well. 
And for those people who are not neurodivergent, uh, what can they learn from your your story? I would hope that people just walk away trying a little bit more to Mm -hmm. understand the people that they're interacting with. And Mm -hmm. if they are not interacting in a way that they're familiar with or that you know seems a bit odd there's probably a reason why and i think the takeaway is to think about you know the way that people communicate and instead of trying to get everybody to communicate in the same way it's to really understand and even value the differences and how we communicate as long as we're still able to communicate to one another Coming up next, Alex talks about his new book, Running Start, how to get a job in tech, keep that job, and thrive. After this. You wrote a book called Running Start, which you've built as a cheat sheet and a how-to guide for anyone who wants to land their first job in tech and then also wants to thrive in their career. And one thing that I think is really interesting is this idea of getting the right job. And I think that especially for a lot of us when we're getting our first job, we don't care what job it is. We just want to get, you know, a job. We want to get started. We want to get our first paycheck. We want to finally, you know, officially break in, grab a seat at the table. But you actually talk about how, you know, getting a job is hard, but getting the right job is harder. How do you define the right job? What does that mean? It means something a little different to everybody. Mm. That is something that I explore in the book. It's like, what is the right job for you? But I mean, in general, the right job is a job on a team at a company where you are supported by your team, by your manager, where there are opportunities to learn and grow, where you have psychological safety, where you feel valued, where you have opportunities to learn from others and partake in mentorship, these sorts of things, you know, where you're going to be learning good habits to take forth into your next job rather than maybe learning some not so great habits Mm. that can happen when you're at certain companies. So I've definitely heard of examples of people, friends, you know, people online who were excited about that first job, started that first job, got there, and then were like, "Uh oh, <laughs> you know, like I, I really wish I had a ding in this job." How do we kind of prevent that from happening? How do we look out for some of those red flags, some of those things that might tell us that, you know, this place isn't a good fit either for cultural reasons for maybe the way they work and operate. Maybe it's toxic and there's many different types of red flags out there. How do we kind of protect ourselves from that situation? Totally. I mean, this is why I tell people that in the interview process, you know, obviously you're being interviewed, but you are also interviewing them. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. it's important to make use of the time, you know, when they ask you if you have any questions to really get to the heart of, you know, what it is you want to know. But in order to do that, like, you really need to have an idea of what it is that you're looking for. You know, this goes back to the first point where first we try to figure out, like, what sort of company do we want to look for? What do we want the environment to look like? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. then 
based off of that, coming up with questions to help us gauge whether this company and this team meets what it is that I'm looking for. That list of questions and your ideal company is going to shift over time as you have different jobs and you know you have things that you like about certain jobs and things that you don't like about certain jobs but like as long as you're keeping track of that you're able to update your questions such that you're able to make sure that you're really only picking up the things that you do like and not necessarily the more red flag sort mm-hmm, of things mm-hmm. So when people do get that job, you know, they're in, it's their first day, their first week, what should they do to really, you know, kick butt the first 30 days, right? When they think about kind of making that first impression, settling in, onboarding, especially if you're, you know, on a big team, lots of things going on, lots of stuff to learn. How do you optimize for success in that first couple weeks? It's all about that first impression. And so in the book, I talk about a few different things like your first one-on-one with your manager and, you know, really the sorts of questions that you want to ask to make sure that you're being set up to learn and to grow and to onboard onto that role and be successful. And so, you know, it's asking about things like mentorship. It's asking about things like how your manager likes to work so that you have an idea of how best to, to work with them. Asking about, you know, how frequently they gather feedback and, you know, just like showing that you're interested basically in knowing these things because it is really helpful to hear as a manager what is important to each person on my team. Mm. And so, you know, by bringing these things up, that's really important. I also talk about building relationships, building trust. And so, you know, there's going to be a lot of new people to meet and spending 15 minutes or so with, with each of them to grab a coffee or something can be really helpful because every time you need something, you'll be able to go to that person and you've already have that relationship built versus like it could be you need something and you've never dealt with that person before and it's going to feel really awkward to try to get their help. Mm. Taking on really small tasks, setting expectations for them and then completing them in fulfillment of those expectations. And it's just like little things like that can add up. So a lot of people in tech and frankly a lot of other industries as well suffer from imposter syndrome, uh, which (laughs) you talk about this phenomenon as well. How can people deal with this and how can they, you know, distinguish between what is real imposter syndrome versus just kind of the, the feeling of being a beginner? You know, I think that whenever you're trying something new and you're First job, first time learning to code, there's always going to be this feeling of like, I don't really belong. I don't know what I'm doing, you know, and that's just beginner blues. You know, I think it's just kind of a normal part of getting used to a new industry and a new world. How do you deal with all those emotions when you're breaking into this industry? There's definitely a lot that goes into that. And I think it's especially difficult for people who took a more non traditional path into tech or, you know, who like don't look like the people around them or, you know, for for whatever reason, it makes it just even easier for them to feel like they don't belong or like they're not doing well enough or they don't understand enough things. And that's really difficult. So the things that I think about when it comes to imposter syndrome 
are one is you could try to fight it with data. And this is partially also why I recommend talking to your new manager about getting feedback on a regular basis and also, you know, by getting a mentor is that the best way to know that you're doing a good job is to hear that frequently from the people around you. So really setting that up so that, you know, your manager, your mentor is giving you that very frequent feedback. It helps to break up some of those imposter syndrome thoughts where if you go a few weeks without hearing anything, it's really easy for your brain to start, you know, it's trying to protect you. But the things that it's trying to protect you from are like, lions and tigers and bears Mm -hmm. and not you know like your co-workers right so (laughs) it's just kind of like trying to readjust and reset that such that you're not constantly vigilant what do you think is the most important thing that people need to do to level up in their careers they need to understand the career ladder for their role at their company And I say this especially for people who are like senior engineers going on to staff, but I think it's equally important for junior engineers. Like if you're a junior engineer, it's really important to know what it means to be a mid-level engineer, because then that's going to help you plan out the projects that you work on, the opportunities that you take towards accomplishing that. And I also think that really talking to your manager about it as as early as possible is important too, because it gets them in the right mindset of, oh, this person is looking to get promoted. So I'm going to keep my eyes out for opportunities that I think would really fit well with what they're trying to show in terms of impact. Mm -hmm. Having an idea of where you're going by looking at the career ladder and then having somebody who's helping to steer you that's your manager well you're actually the one who's driving Mm. so as developers i think we are very well known for jumping from company to company and you know kind of (laughs) staying at a place for not very long uh i think i remember i I met some engineer who's at a place for like a decade and i was like why? <laughs> you know, I'm just so <laughs> I'm so used to these, you know, kind of short-term positions. And so I'm wondering, you know, when you look at developers and their options, and you know, generally developers have a lot of options for for different jobs, when do you know that it is a good time to maybe look for a new job? When is it time for you to say, you know what, I'm gonna see what's out there and, and maybe move positions? There are a lot of reasons why it could be a good time to try something new. Maybe you want to get some experience working on something else. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you're working for an e-commerce website and you want to figure out how social media works or how audio services like Spotify work. That's a good opportunity to start thinking about what do I want to try to learn and where can I learn that? It could also be, you know, if you're feeling kind of stuck where you are, and that could be in terms of your level where you don't feel like you can get promoted, or it could just be in terms of like opportunities that you want that aren't available to you at that company. Mm. I think that's a completely valid reason for this. Some people move, and I mean, it's not as as big of a problem nowadays, but 
you know, it is something to consider, like, if you lived in the city where a company's headquarters is and you move halfway across the country, then you might want to reconsider that if you have a problem with working remote. There are also lots of other reasons that include sometimes the situation at a company is not so great. Sometimes the situation with your manager is not so great. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you really just have to know when enough is enough. Now, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to fill in the blanks of some very important questions. Alex, are you ready to fill in the blanks? I'll give it my best. <laughs> Deal. Number one, worst advice I've ever received is? Uh, during a resume review once, I was told by a, a recruiter that I should capitalize the words that I thought were important. Oh. Just randomly, you know, because <laughs> th that made them more prominent. I mean, I guess technically it does. It it does, but, you know, that's not really the way that English works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, number two, best advice I've ever received is? I would say that it's that humans have two ears and only one mouth, and that we should use them proportionally. Mm, good one. Number three, my first coding project was about? I remember doing a lot of TI basic development on my graphing calculator, yeah. which <laughs> I, I assume others have also come into development that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I would say. Number four, one thing I wish I knew when I first started to code is? I would say code doesn't have to be perfect, and mm -hmm. it never is. And just to understand how if you knew what went into making the software for your car, for anything else, you would never drive again. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much, Alex, for joining us. Thank you for having me. This show is produced and mixed by Levi Sharp. You can reach out to us on Twitter at CodeNewbies or send me an email, hello at CodeNewbie.org. For more info on the podcast, check out www.CodeNewbie.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.